Hello, you are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Plumfield Reads. Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft. I'm here with Sarah Masaryk, and today for our book club, because we're doing, we're talking about a young adult book, we have some young adults with us. We have Greta and Anna and Felicity. Well, Diane, I'm so glad that we have young people here with us today to discuss resistance. I think it's wonderful that we have a fairly regular book club crew, and we like those ladies a whole heck of a lot. But as we do YA books, I think it's particularly helpful to have the target audience with us in this book club discussion. (laughs) Um, Probably in part because I think they actually like the books even better than we do. And I think they see it from a different perspective than we do. So rather than having a bunch of old moms in here, we thought it was time to get some more young people. So Anna, we're so thrilled to have you back. You were with us with the Mortensen girls when we did Wednesday Wars. So we're delighted to have you back. And you have sitting next to you, your good friend and our friend, Felicity. And Felicity is a member of my library. And uh, there's about three three patrons of my 100 young people and children in the library. There's three patrons who are unwittingly in competition with each other for who has the most books checked out and who reads the fastest. And Felicity is holding her own against Elsa and Walter right now. Is it unwitting? Or now with Kelsey. <laughs> to not, not with Elsa and Walter. They have a competition. <laughs> yes, theirs is a very unvarnished competition. <laughs> They're very clearly checking in with each other to see who's out reading mm-hmm. who. <laughs> more like checking in with me to see who's got more. They don't have the courage to ask each other. <laughs> That's true. And then, of course, we have Greta with us. Uh, so Greta is obviously my Greta and that's why she feels very free to just jump in and chat and that's exactly the way we like it so so Anna and Felicity how old are you girls I'm 17 and I'm 16 we're like 11 months apart so we're the same age for one month of the year oh nice very nice so Anna is 17 and Felicity is 16 and you girls are both in school you are at our local Chesterton Academy is that right So you are in a school that reads a ton of books and does a ton of like theater. (laughs) How do you have time to read? (laughs) Sometimes it feels like we don't. But (laughs) Anna was working on resistance for like three months. She always had it sitting out. (laughs) Well, and I was like, oh, I got to read that. Anna, did it take you three months to read resistance because you weren't loving it? Well, I did get, there was one part where I put it down for a while Mm. um, because I wasn't super engaged at that point, but also I had a lot else going on. Sure, sure. Because when we did the Words on Fire book club in the library, it was really interesting because Anna, you and Felicity had different opinions on Jennifer Nielsen's writing and what was going on in that book. Anna had very, very strong feelings about the weakness of the character. (laughs) I just remember thinking like everybody was going on about how they liked Ben so much. And I was like, I didn't feel about him one way or another. (laughs) Like he was just there. (laughs) Well, what about this one? So Anna, did you ultimately like this one when it was all said and done? So I think part of the 
thing I didn't like about Words on Fire was that I felt like the main character wasn't developed very well. Mm -hmm. Here, I feel like you don't get to know Haya very well at the beginning. Like, you don't know much about her personality. But I think that works with the story Mm. because she's like just living to do the next thing. Yes. So you're just hearing about what she's doing. You're not really hearing about where she came from or what she's like, but I think it works in this context. Interesting. She's also always pretending to be someone else. So that makes a lot of sense too. Yeah. Good point. Felicity, what about you? What did you think of this book? So I first read it last summer when we were coming back from our road trip and I was like sitting in the front seat reading it and I finished it and I texted you, Miss Mazark, and I was like, that's her best book. Uh-huh. Period. Yep. So yeah, I really, really liked it. Yeah, I agree. It's her best book. In my opinion, it's her best book as well. Greta, what about you? What did you think of this book overall? It was one of my favorites of hers. I think my favorite actually Lines of Courage, but I did really love this. I think I like Lines of Courage better because it's third person and first person drives me nuts. <laughs> so <laughs> resistance did drive me nuts sometimes, but not nearly as badly as others. What about Haya, Greta? Did you care about Haya as a character? I thought she was fine. I did not like Audra from Words on Fire or Gerda from Night Divided, but I thought Haya was better than most. Okay. She, I liked Esther better, though. Yeah, but we're not supposed to like Esther in the beginning. I mean, she works really hard to make us not like Esther. And then you fall in love with her. (laughs) At least I did. Why did you fall in love with Esther? Actually, wait. I can't ask you that question because we haven't done the spoiler parts yet. Well, friends, we are recording this book club with the understanding that you have already read this book and you are looking forward to having a discussion about it that reveals the details of the story or that you haven't read it, but you don't mind spoilers. If, however, you're concerned about spoilers, this is where you would stop. This book club is really not for you. Our plan here is to actually talk about the book. And so starting right now, we are going to go right into the thick of it and uh, see what these young ladies thought about this book and why and all of that kind of stuff. So feel free to go ahead and bookmark this podcast and come back when you're ready. All right. So characters. We've already talked a little bit about Haya and how she compares a little bit to some of the other characters in some of Jennifer Nielsen's other books. But Greta, you mentioned that you really liked Esther. Why did you like Esther? I'm not exactly sure. I spent the first half of the book thinking she was weak and yeah, just really, really weak. And then something happened halfway through when she was captured and she seems stronger than Haya. And nicer, too, for that matter. Mm. What do you mean by nicer? I thought, like, Haya was often quite rude, especially to Esther, but to other characters. Mm -hmm. Esther never, ever was rude. Never intentionally. I think Esther really did not desire to be intentionally rude. Yeah. Felicity, what about you? What did you think of Esther? I think, personally, like Anna says, we don't know a lot of what Haya is really like. Mm-hmm. But I probably would have had the same feelings towards Esther as she did. Although, if I were a Jew during World War II, I don't think I'd be out throwing grenades. I think I'd be <laughs> in the hidden place. I'd probably be a lot like Esther. I don't know. But I would probably be annoyed that she wasn't doing what she was supposed to be doing and mm. that she shouldn't be a part 
of our little unit because we were a really good unit and we were used to getting things done. Mm. Um, yeah, so I'd probably be very annoyed at her. But usually I'm just annoyed and I don't like <laughs> outright saying, you're useless, like Kaya says. So. She's very blunt, yeah. Mm-hmm. She's very direct, <laughs> is she not? <laughs> Anna what about you what did you think of Esther you know how you said Greta that you felt like there was a like a change halfway through it's kind of the same thing that I felt like happened in Words on Fire with Audra (laughs) I was thinking about that actually (laughs) I remember your comments at the book club yeah so I felt like it was just two different people Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. yeah yeah so so I think what you're saying is you found it unbelievable that the Esther of the first half could become the Esther of the second half. Is that what you're saying? Yes, I suppose. But I found, I think that this was more believable for me than Audra's character arc was because like I've known people like Esther, like personality and temperament wise mm. and how they can really do amazing things that you never expected. Right. Right. And Audra was like a 12-year-old. Yeah, yeah. These girls were older. Definitely. Maybe that's why I liked it more is because the girls were my age. I don't know. So why do you guys keep saying something happened halfway through? What's that halfway through point? What do you, what do you think was at work there? It was the point when like they were thrown together, right? It was after the cafe mm-hmm. and there was only Den left. So I think before Haya just kind of ignored Esther and was like, oh, well, you're really annoying because you can't do anything. And so she just ignored her and didn't really try to do anything, like, to, like, open their relationship, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, like, they kind of have to when it's just them. They have to figure out some way yeah. of living. Yeah, isn't that interesting? You can hide in a group, but you can't when it's just the two of you. It's And especially when you're in a life-and-death situation as they are. I felt like the halfway point for Esther, I don't know if it was halfway through the book or not, was somewhere between Lotz and Warsaw. So when she got captured in particular, I think somewhere in between there, she grew up. Well, when she was okay. really fast. When she was tortured. Would you mark that as her transformation point? Probably, except after Lotz, she seemed more grown up. So I think, Greta, one thing I do want to say is for the listeners at home that there are two different pronunciations for many of the words that are in this book, and they are often used interchangeably. And so when Greta was saying lots, we were very curious about that. And we went and looked into it, and it's that the narrator actually went and is using the, Greta, was it the Polish pronunciation? I think, I think she was using the Yiddish I seem to recall that we looked it up and that Lotz would be the Polish, but that the the Yiddish pronunciation or word for that same city would be Wuj. So Greta, am I hearing you correctly that you think that the transformation point for her, for Esther, was somewhere around after her capture and her torture? Somewhere around there. Didn't happen immediately, but rather it kind of settled in on her and then... After Lotz. After Lotz. Settled in after Lotz and then just was um, sped up by her capture. Okay, great. About Lotz or Woosh or whatever. Um, I mean, however, whatever is the correct pronunciation because I'm not Polish. Although actually I am Polish, but I don't speak Polish. So, um, why did Esther go to Lotz? Uh, Lotz. 
Loads. Loads. Like, there was no reason she had to go there. So why did she lie? Haya. Like, if I were Haya, I'd be very annoyed. It's like, uh, my friend is like, here, we have a very important mission we have to go to. And then you sneak in, you lose all the food in your bags because some little, I don't remember what his name is, collaborator, blackmailer person takes it. And then you barely escape with your lives, all because your friend just wanted to see what happened to those lives of the people who her dad put in her stead, or how Esther's dad was in, like, a Judenrat or something like he that. He was in the Judenrat, yes. Judenrat, yep. Mm-hmm. And so instead of sending Esther away on one of the trains to Lodz, he sent all these other people. And I guess I would have wanted to know what happened to them, too, but uh, I don't know. Maybe part of Esther's growing up was seeing how badly that turned out. Like, mm-hmm. her trying to take initiative and go off the trail for kind of selfish reasons could have shown her, like, that that was not a good idea. <laughs> it It is a curious thing that we have this detour, and this detour is really depressing and very, very challenging. It does make you wonder, did Nielsen include this simply so she could tell another piece of the history and she didn't have another way of working it into the story? Or is there something deeper at work? What do you think? Do you think that there is anything deeper going on in Esther's desire to go to Lotz or Woosh, however we say it? Well, there was that part where they met those kids. Mm -hmm. And they were, it was like... The, the martyr mentality that Haya found very annoying. But, like, I think Anna has written down on her notepad. Like, like it's just a different thing. Like, Haya's trying to, you know, I guess beat the enemy so that everything can go back. Or at least somehow get to something better than what this is. Although it can't return to normal because nothing's ever going to be back to normal. No, no. Too many lives have been lost and destroyed for it to ever return to anything close to normal. So I guess Haya wants to survive to build a new world. And these kids are like, well, we know that we can't get out. So we're going to give our lives so that you can get away. And Haya just doesn't understand that. I think there was something else, though. I think that there was another reason why the kids made the choice and the stand that they made. There's something very beautiful about what was happening with those kids. I'm not sure how how or why it actually fits properly into the plot, but it is, I still think, a very compelling set of scenes. Anna or Greta, do you have any thoughts about why did those kids take that stand, take that position? Well, they said they were dying for God. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was interesting that they had such peace in their death because of that. Mm -hmm. And then later on in the book, um, Haya talks about how the resistance members have peace in knowing that they're going to die because they're also dying for a purpose. Right. So how beautiful that can be versus like Haya's parents who at the end even though death was coming, there was no peace. There was just kind of a deadness. Yes. Whereas if you don't have something to die for. Right. Like they can be different things, Mm -hmm. but they both have purpose. Resignation is a different thing 
just sort of surrender and resignation is a very different thing than dying on your feet. That was the goal, was to die on their feet and do some good, make their death count. Now, the, I think both are examples of how to die on your feet. In the case of Esther, she died on her feet protecting, the, protecting those who were escaping the ghetto. Haya believed that her moment to die would be at any point, and yet she knew that being an active member of the resistance, she has the opportunity to die on her feet, potentially saving lives or dealing a blow to the enemy or slowing down, um, slowing down the tragedy. You know, she definitely felt like she was contributing to something bigger. But those, these are very physical things. And what we see in the children in Woosh is a very spiritual kind of dying on their feet, standing up for what they believe to be scriptural. You know, they believe the covenant requires them to not kill their enemy unless their enemy, you know, is coming after them. They say, you know, self-defense is one thing. They did not believe that going and attacking the enemy was necessarily what they, what was the right thing to do. And they definitely didn't feel called to it. We see that in Christianity as well as, you know, so it's for they, they are Jews, of course, but we see that in Christianity as well. Some who believe that it is wrong to take life. Like Desmond Doss mm-hmm. in uh, World War yeah. II. Decided to be a medic instead of a soldier. That's right. And what did he do, Greta? He saved the lives of between 50 and 100, depending on one hill, on that one hill, on on one hill, one mountain, Mountain. right? (laughs) Went up and down 150 to 100 times, saving lives. And he did that because he was a Seventh-day Adventist and did not believe that it was right to take life. So I don't know, though, as much as I I thought that that scene was those set of scenes in Woosh were very, very compelling, um, haunting, really. The women with the garbage, it, I mean, it's bone chilling to think these women feel like they're, li- I mean, they're the living dead at this point. And um, to feel guilt that they were complicit in the destruction of their own children I can't even imagine the kind of tragedy that they're living. And then to see these three children who survived that and are not going to survive it, right? They're not going to survive it by the end of this scene. I think these are really important things that we need to have in our minds and our hearts when we're contemplating what was happening in the ghettos. And if these, if this book is just a really great look inside the ghettos, I would say job well done. But what about it in terms of plot, does it fit in the plot? Well, I don't know about the plot, but I think I think it is an important piece to see, I guess, seeing all that in the ghettos and stuff like that. I guess what annoyed me was that Esther lied. I hate yeah. lying. Yeah. 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 I'm with you. So, me too. That's what bothered me about it. Yeah, for sure. And diverted resources away from the cause. Yeah, if they hadn't gone there, they wouldn't have lost that big bag of food that they were carrying. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and they potentially could have been killed, and those children may not have been killed if the Judenrat and the, the guards were not actually looking for the girls. So, in mm-hmm. fact, they, they could have been the reason why those children were killed. 
I think it was probably important to the plot because of Esther. Mm -hmm. It was a way of showing Esther's story and understanding her and helping her to grow up. So when we think of the plot, it doesn't just have to be a series of action sequences, right? It can be actually storytelling about the character. Who is this character? Letting us know that character better. And how better to get to know Esther than to see this. But why why was it so important to Esther to go there? I think it was just because she felt guilt. Mm-hmm. Guilt can be a strong compulsion to go somewhere or do something. She probably wanted... She probably knew it was bad and she was trying to tell herself that it wasn't as bad Mm -hmm. and so she wanted to go see what like what it actually was like right that doesn't really help your guilt if you go and see that it's worse than you could have ever imagined well perhaps she thought that the supplies they had could be it could have been useful there you know that she could have gone to bring some relief that would make sense that maybe she was trying to go in a tone but of course, they lose they lose everything, so they weren't able to atone. I'm sure this is very much historical, but I kept thinking, you're risking your life to take a backpack full of food inside this ghetto where there are hundreds and thousands of people starving. Right. That's probably what they had to do. But when you think about one or two people doing that, it, it, it's almost unfathomable. First of all, that that could help. Right. And again, that they're not getting just mobbed, <laughs> you know, beaten right. up for the loaf of bread they have in their backpack. It's right. it's hard. I can't even imagine how all those things were working out. We only have this story of a couple of young girls. Were they the only ones doing that? And if so, how? why was that even worth risking life for? I think it's because more often than not, they came out with a baby. Mm. They would have, a, have, they were smuggling something out. As well as smuggling something in. That's a good point. I think, though, if you're a Jew and you can't, there's not a lot of circles that are open to you. There's not a lot of ways you can resist. Is even the small effort, it's something. You, it's something you can do. It's a way in which to make your life count. Sure. And I'm not saying they shouldn't have done it. If you just, just didn't think about that for oh. a minute. I'm going to go right. die. For this backpack with a couple of loaves of bread in it. Well, and compounded by, as we know from our conversation with John Tepper Marlin about what was really happening in Holland, so often the Nazis wouldn't just punish the person who was doing the thing. They would usually go and line up 10, 20, 30 men and shoot them all. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just, oh, if I get caught, I'm going to die. They might line up 10 people and kill them, too. Right. So are you doing more harm than good? Yeah, that's a tough one. Mm-hmm. One interesting quote, though, that I wrote down, I don't remember exactly what was happening, but she was contemplating people doing something like that and people doing nothing. And it says, if there was any difference between causing a man to drown and failing to throw him a rope, it certainly didn't matter to the man in the water. It was right outside of Rouge. That neither were rescued. Right. And that whether you caused him to die or just let him die, right. same thing to the right. man. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I think that was right outside of Rouge when she was watching a bunch of poles just walk by, not looking. Yeah. Not with bread in their hands. Um, on my, in. in my book, it was page 172, if that helps. <laughs> Greta's checking. Yeah. 
because I don't know <laughs> if it matters what was happening. It was that was just kind of one of those things that made me stop and go, "Whoa, that would that would be an everyday consideration for these people." Because pretty much and- any Jew who was a Jew in this place and time was risking their life every day just by still being there, existing. Yeah, yeah just by existing. Between Wuj and Warsaw. Yeah, I think it's when she's talking about the different kinds of Poles. Yeah. Like the people who collaborated with the Nazis, the people who didn't do anything, and then the people who smuggled food and smuggled babies and all that sort of stuff. Right. Or like the farmer who gave them a ride and, you know, didn't report them, didn't turn them in. He assisted in the way that he could assist. I liked that farmer. And then he just walks out of the story. I know. I was hoping he'd be... I don't know, back again, maybe maybe when they get out of the Warsaw ghetto or something. I don't know. At our in-person book club, we had a whole conversation about how much everyone liked yeah. the farmer and he did come back. Like some people said that they, he was their favorite character in the whole story. <laughs> Isn't that real life, though? I mean, if you think about the network of people, that maybe that's all they could do is just that one thing. And maybe he did it over and over again. But none of the other people would have known. Right. Because you couldn't tell. By some of the things he said, I think he yeah. did. But you couldn't tell. He seemed, he seemed practiced at this. Because mm-hmm. he offered them a place at his house, yes, too. that they would hide the girls. One of the things that I like so much about this book is that because it's written in YA, it's written with very emotional language, and that's designed to make you care. And it's designed to make you think, what would I do? If I were mm-hmm. Esther, if I were Haya, if I were the farmer, what would I do? If this were happening to me, how would I behave? This is a good example of putting on the shoes of somebody else and walking at them for a little while. And that these stories are really good for us because they prepare us then for when we do have to make really hard decisions. Is it worth it to be a member of the resistance? Yeah, at the part where she was saying that the resistance members had peace um, right before they knew they were going to die, Mm -hmm. I was wondering, what would I be doing at that point? And would I have peace? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Anna was reading that part, and we were like in study hall or something together. And so she's sitting right next to me, just like, oh, that's nice. We're like, it's kind of like just a nice feel good part. But, like, it's not because they're talking about their death. Right. But at the same time, it's like, I just really like that part. Mm. I like when she gets to Warsaw and she's reunited with her brother. And they he is explaining to her that the reason why Warsaw Ghetto is so different is because they clung to the art. They sang. They played music. They worshipped. It's on Anna's notes. Of course it's on Anna's I notes. I wrote that note. I wrote the page down. Why did you write that down, Anna? I, I've i always been fascinated by the fact that, like, a culture's art form kind of, it makes the culture. Yes. Whatever the people are doing in art mm. describes what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then he says somewhere that, like, the Nazis treat them like animals Mm -hmm. and like something that sets 
animals apart from humans. Like they can't make art. Mm -hmm. And so if you convince somebody that they're not any better than animals, then you have complete power over them. So if you control, and if you control the art in a way, you control the people. Right. So the ultimate form of resistance is art. I mean, he was saying the ultimate form of resistance for them was music, specifically was music in the ghetto. To be able to worship through song, to be able to simply sing about the good or the bad or whatever, just the the power of song and how healing and inspiring that is and how much that kept them alive. Like words on fire, but of course that's just words. That's words, yeah. Which are art, right? Stories are art. I think, is the sentence, if you control the language, you control the people? In, yes, in Words on in Fire. fire. Mm-hmm. So I had in my notes, if you control the art form, you control the people. And so I was like, oh, wait, it's the same thing. It's the same. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think really they're doing the same thing. Only in Lithuania, it's books and in... Um, Warsaw, it's people. And music. And music, yeah. Yeah. Like, like they're smuggling books and they're smuggling people. Yeah. Because it's a celebration of the true, the good, and the beautiful. Whether it's in the form of a book or it's in the form of a poem or it's in the form of a, a song or music from an instrument. I think about, this makes me think of two things. Um, first, there's a very, very beautiful sad small little book by Gary D Schmidt called Mara's Stories and it is a collection of stories and songs that the, either uh, of the Jews in the concentration camps but much more importantly of the stories and songs that they told to each other in the concentration camps to keep themselves alive to keep the children remembering who they were as a people and that they're not animals And so I really recommend that book to anybody. And yes, it's in our library, girls, in case you're curious. It's um, so compelling and beautiful. And I also think about, for all of our Catholic listeners out there, I think about John Paul II. And one of the most important things that he did during World War II in Poland was to join the resistance through art. And he, they did plays. They did um, underground plays. (laughs) And theater was such a big thing. And and, and uh, Carl Wojtyla even wrote a play, um, which we have that in our uh, library as well, by the way. Um, and I th- just think about how much good fruit that did bear. And then I'm reading right now Connie Willis's Blackout and All Clear for the second time this year. And or in the last year, I should say. And there's a whole theatrical theme to it. And how the plays in the underground were really good during the Blitz and kept people entertained, gave them something meaningful to do. And it was sort of their way of fighting back against Hitler's bombs, the noise of the bombs. Yeah. And she still has on red blackout and all clear. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Even though she loves to say nothing of the dog. Anna, you're going to love blackout all clear. You really are. And they're excellent on audio, just, you know. Okay. I will do that soon, actually, I think. (laughs) 
It's so good, Anna. I'm like, I have two hours to go in all clear, and I've been stretching it out for three days because I don't want it to end again. <laughs> oh, I get to the point where I'm like, let's flip to the end. No, folks. no, no. It's so beautiful. I'm like, I remember every single scene so vividly. <gasps> Wait, and this is when Colin, when Colin does this. And, you know, I was very, very excited to read it again. And I'm excited that we're reading it again this year because then I don't have to be sad when it ends. We know that one of the reasons that in the concentration camps or in the ghettos or any time that one civilization is trying to conquer another one, they take try to take away their culture because mm-hmm. it's a, a way of controlling. But also you mentioned um, the true, the good, and the beautiful. And I'm just coming more and more to realize that one of the reasons that those things have to be stamped out is because truth is offensive to people who lie. And yes. goodness is offensive to bad people and beauty right. is offensive to people who love ugliness. And yeah. so they try to turn that around and, and stop you from having those things because it offends them. Right. It offends the demon in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I guess what you said about one civilization trying to stamp out another culture, it's kind of like, like Rome, when it conquered the world, like it left behind all its traces and everything. And we know we have tons and tons of artifacts of Rome, but we don't really have any artifacts from those obscure, like, Celtic tribes that lived in Northern Gaul or whatever, you know? We just, like, we trounced them, says Caesar. Yay! Like, you know? (laughs) That depends upon the ruler. Some rulers were more open to it than others. Rome used, during the Republic, Rome used to be known for the fact that it always left things, let them be them. Emperors, not so much. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. were easier to rule if they didn't try so hard to stamp out their cultures and let them kind of keep a semblance of rule. Well, even we see, so I'm reading right now The Glorious Folly by Louis Duvall, and you, there's a whole conversation, and Diane and I are reading Ben-Hur right now. Oh, well, so are Anna and Felicity and Greta. We are all reading oh, Ben-Hur yeah, right yeah. now. <laughs> and um, we see that the Roman, oh, there it is, Anna, good job. We see that the Romans tolerate not they more than tolerated the Judaism of Judea because it kept the Jews in line. If Rome could own the high priests, but the Jews could still have their observances, then everybody was happy. Er, er, happy enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Until that one guy came along, it's like, oh, why do we do this again? Let's just make them Roman. <laughs> Yeah. I have a question for the girls. Going back to something that you said about like the written for YA, first person point of view, a lot of emotion trying to make you feel what would you do? Which is which is admirable in a book like this. I think that's one reason we need to read them, because we need to know what we would do. But sometimes in the the modern style of writing for young adults, which is the concept is modern in itself. They used to just write for people. <laughs> and if young adults liked yes. it, that was fine. Um, yes. But in, in um, this book and in Words on Fire, I get exhausted with the constant repetition of how instead of showing that they're emotional, they tell you, Oh, and she felt again, how her parents were just sitting in their apartment, not trying to live. Don't forget her parents are just, you know, not doing anything. Don't forget (laughs) she's all worried about her parents. 
And she did this because of her parents. So my question to you girls is, is that necessary to talk to you like that in order to evince the kind of emotion she wants? I actually don't remember noticing that. Like, I remember her mentioning her parents, like, twice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think it stuck out to me very much. It was worse than Words on Fire. Like, a lot worse. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But do oh, you oh, need yeah. that first-person, angsty, emotional point of view in order to understand what a character is doing or thinking? Probably not. No. Personally, it grates on my nerves the entire time. <laughs> I like the story. I don't like the narration. I don't really mind it, but I probably could do without it, you know. I don't know. Yeah, in some um, young adult series, uh, specifically, I think, Keepers of the Lost City, when I read the first couple books mm-hmm. in middle school, that really did bother me, how they do keep saying over and over again. How tortured like they are. How tortured. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's just because My all these life. things are so hard for her. <laughs> so, Anna, you're saying, yeah, it's pretty annoying. Greta, you're saying it's pretty annoying. Felicity, you said you didn't really notice it too much. But that implies that you weren't really, like, digging it either. You weren't excited about it. Probably not. Uh-oh. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like because that type of thing is relatable, it's more annoying because it's like, I have stuff like that. I don't need to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) And I would say that this is a hallmark of YA fiction. Girls, wouldn't you agree that this is really, this is present in almost all books that have a YA designation? Yeah. Probably. I don't know. I don't really read a lot of YA books. Right. Exactly. Girls. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I don't read a lot of YA for this very reason. I met somebody in the library today asking me for more books like Jennifer Nielsen because they'd exhausted Jennifer Nielsen. And and um, I said, well, that's actually pretty tricky because she's a YA author and most YA books I'm not really a fan of. So it was just an interesting thing that I think we all like what Jennifer Nielsen does is she brings our attention to aspects of history that we don't necessarily understand very well. And they, she invites us into sort of be, pull back the curtain. What were the ghettos really mm-hmm, like? Or mm-hmm. what was the Lithuanian uprising like? Or I, I do really like, uh, Greta, what is it? The, the train, the World War One. Lines of Courage. That one isn't. That one's in third person, and it's. I think it's her best. Anna, you said that originally at the Words on Fire in person book club that we did. You said, "I think that Jennifer Nielsen's books would be greatly improved if they were written in third person." Did I say that? You did very strongly. I think so. It's true, but I don't remember <laughs> saying that. Yeah. Oh, I so remember because you were sitting off to the side, and I just looked at you and like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think third person would change it? Well, I think probably because of what we were talking about with the like bringing up my emotions and kind of just turning in on yourself is very characteristic of teenagers. Mm -hmm. And it's not helpful. (laughs) (laughs) Bravo, bravo. When you talk about something, it just gets worse. Yes. Yes. Oh no. And then you like, I've done this before. I have really busy days and I lay in my bed and I'm like, so first 
I got to do this. And then I'm going to, at this time, I'm going to leave and then I'm going to hop over to there. And then this, it doesn't really help. No, it doesn't. And it's, <laughs> I've heard it described as spiritual gluttony. When we allow ourselves to wallow in our stress or allow ourselves to wallow in particular emotions, that it's, it's actually a form of spiritual imbalance and specifically that it's a form of gluttony. So that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and that, <laughs> for me, that's an excellent term for so much modern writing literature. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. If we want to call it literature rather than, I was gluttony, just going to say, literature yeah. earns the title literature. Yeah. Because it <laughs> is the more, 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 mm-hmm. more amount, more of the story. Don't end it here. Tell me what else happened. Again this and is, again. This is why I need again. 14 books in a series yep. because I'm not mm-hmm. satiated. And keep mm-hmm. the adrenaline pumping. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With Lines of Courage, I think that was my second Nielsen book that I read. And the first that I was like, hmm, that sounds really interesting. I think I'll read it. Because um, like World War One is cool, but like not cool at the same time. Right. It was pointless. But um, I guess it's cool in the fact that nobody knows about it very much. It's um, interesting stories for sure because mm-hmm, it is so confusing mm-hmm. and messy. But I definitely liked this book better. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. There was just something like, I think I've said before, the ending was kind of like, are five kids who live in different parts of Europe really going to all get together and become friends and then save somebody and then have their enemy, who is all five of them's enemy, let me repeat, all of a sudden this mm-hmm. one guy is all the enemy of all five of them, and they're all from different parts of Europe. And then it'd be like, oh, you guys were so kind to me. I'm going to be nice now, too. <laughs> I know. that I tried to ignore the ending because I thought the rest of the book was great. <laughs> well, she does some incredible research, and I think in some ways it's worth it just for that. Because I don't have to go do it. I know nothing mm-hmm. about the Warsaw Ghetto, and I don't have time to go research it. But she did that, and I appreciate that mm-hmm. part of it. Yeah. And, you know, it's a little bit like we say so often, Diane, about picture book biographies being just a wonderful first course when you're trying to decide how much you want to learn about something. You can start with a picture book biography and get or a really solid picture book about a historical event. Say, okay, now I know like the outline of it and it was done well. So now I'm intrigued. Now I get to decide if I want to read more or not. Mm -hmm. Well, Mm -hmm. I don't want to read volumes and volumes on the ghettos. I do not. That I I can't. I just, my heart is breaking too much. But a book like this or a book like Lines of Courage, which just gives me the five different fronts that this war was fought on, the confusion and the complexity of it. I mean, I never knew until Lines of Courage that Russia was on one side of World War I. And then because they had a revolution, they ended up switching sides. I didn't know that Mm -hmm. because I don't understand World War I. And so... These Nielsen books, from a historical point of view, are tremendously good resources. I could do without all of the teenage angst. <laughs> but one thing I would say to Felicity's point about the five different people from all over Europe getting together and whatever happened, because I haven't read that one. But it was reminding me of some of the ones I've read recently, like with Virginia Hall and her work yeah. in the resistance in France. People from all over the world were funneling through very small points where they could get out of where they were. And I think that the more you read about the numbers of people who were 
refugees Mm -hmm. and there were only a certain number of places to go and to escape from through right the more believable that gets because i mean even just this one person in in her work in france she was all over the place connecting she was the silent connector between all kinds of people who could so this guy can do that and he needs this and i know who has it and i can get it together but i can't be the one who hands it to him i'm gonna have somebody else do it i think that was happening a lot well i think as americans we tend to think europe big vast place because the united states is big and vast i don't think we really recognize that continental europe is actually not that big and so when you say people were funneling through very small places we're talking about there was actually only action in certain parts of a very small place. And so thousands or millions of people are moving through and around these areas. It does maybe make it a little more believable. I'm with you on that. <laughs> I do want to also agree with Felicity that the whole the whole setup of Lines of Courage is quite contrived. No, that's sad. But it's still lovely. <laughs> okay. It's still fun. Yeah, I guess Mrs. Pendergraft, what you said about like that's, you know, like during a war in Europe, um, that probably is like something that could have happened. Like we were just talking about someone in literature class that like, and the, like the back of the book said something about like he was the like his life was something that only could have happened in the high Middle Ages because it was just like crazy um and i guess this is a story that only could have happened during world war one right right or now with the internet (laughs) right right with the internet anything's possible (laughs) right yeah now now nothing is surprising (laughs) anna you had notes for today what else did you have written down what did you want to talk about i thought it was interesting when her leg got injured and then how she had to take time to recover. But sort of? But kind of? Really? So, like, I don't know. Like, would it have been wiser? Like, if you go out too soon. I guess it really is just a lose-lose situation. And I think they do say that. Because, yeah. like, if you're taking resources, resting. But you're probably not going to recover all the way. Right. And then when she has to decide, kind of, who gets to live and who they just leave but Mm -hmm. even then they can't save the people who they decide to save so then it like kind of happens to her and I don't know maybe it's not realistic that she made it out but it's just really hard it's fascinating that she made it out truly I remember Andrew Murphy saying that in club he's like uh Haya should have died she should not have survived Mm -hmm. resistance I guess what are the numbers Like, how many people actually made it out? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Because this is, I mean, a little bit of what Jennifer Nielsen's doing is telling modern fairy tales, right? Like, so she wants happy endings tied up with a bow. Um, You know, there's always a loss. But Anna, was it you who said at Words on Fire that you knew somebody? Oh, it wasn't that. Maybe it was somebody else, I think, at the resistance book club has said well i know she was gonna die because she's not oh it was andrew murphy he's like i knew she was gonna die i knew esther was gonna die because she's not the primary character and we always lose somebody who's close to the primary character so she was the candidate <laughs> yeah. like good deductive logic there <laughs> well, well jaded but not wrong 
I also <laughs> it's true. I felt like that about her um, relationship with Esther at first. It was so she was being so obvious about the fact that she didn't like Esther and didn't trust her and thought she was weak and whatever. That I from the be- beginning of that, I'm going. She'll turn out to be a hero. Mm-hmm. Of course, me think that the woman protests too much. Right. Yeah. And that's another one of those things where maybe in a book this short and for younger people, you have to do that. But in good writing, I don't think that's good. That's a little bit too obvious. Okay. I just picked out who's going to die, who's going to turn out to be best friends. And, you know, I've got all the relationships from the beginning. Yeah. Like fairy tales are supposed to be predictable. But why are we asking teenagers to read things that are predictable and are not nuanced? To me, YA has a little bit of, it It meets, it does the two extremes. It's both arrested development and it's let's crash them into adult content, kind of wrapped up in a box. Yeah, good point. So death and, and destruction and emotion and obviousness. And toddler-like emotion, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm just saying that's a, as a genre, as a class. And there may be a lot of listeners here who are going to be very upset with me for saying that because they <laughs> love YA. You know what? If there is really compelling YA out there, I'd like to know about it. Um, yeah. I know Tanya does have some that she loves. Mm-hmm. So there, I'm not saying that there's no YA. I'm saying as a general category, it seems to me to be that the hallmarks are let's keep this immature emotionally let's not force our characters to be emotionally mature and let's put them in really really adult situations and see how they do Mm -hmm. and to me that makes for some sort of disjointed storytelling yeah and we definitely do want to know if if when there is a writer who's not doing that because it's kind of like the the saying about you have to kiss a lot of frogs before you find a prince we get tired of kissing the frogs. Yeah, but we did find a prince in Gary D. Schmidt. Did oh, yeah. We not? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pretty awesome. <laughs> and Nielsen's not really a frog. No. But no. she's kind of like, there's there's this transition to prince that hasn't been totally accomplished yet. <laughs> <laughs> or she may be trying to placate a particular editorial style. There might be requirements on her writing. And, I'm sure um, there is. Yeah, I think she may just be trying to satisfy a particular... Because some of her storytelling is so good that you think, what, why did you just mar it with that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're writing mm-hmm. too much. I remember, Diane, when we interviewed Gary D. Schmidt, and we asked him a little bit about how he what, you know, wrote so many books and how he has changed as a writer over the years. And he said, you know, in the old days you would just, you would get an editor and you would just write and write and write. And the editor would keep turning the manuscript back to you until it was, until it was better. And then you'd get published and that's how you would know if you had done well or not. You would, you would find out if you had failed because of publishing. And the adage was publish as much as possible because that's how you get to be a better writer because you would take the critical feedback and hopefully grow from it. I did think it was interesting how during the uprising, they kept finding each other again. And then they have like, you know, how she kept finding her brother and Esther, even though they kept splitting up and doing different things. But then all of a sudden they'd be back together and then they'd go out. Oh, I thought that was kind of an interesting 
way to write it? I don't know. Oh, I liked the part at the end where she's in the, she got out of the ghetto and then she's talking to that priest mm-hmm. and then she, um, he's talking to her and she's like, eh, you know, and then she, he shows her his prison number tattoo from Auschwitz mm-hmm. and I was like, whoa, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, I was like, how do you get out of Auschwitz? Like, this is literally still in the middle of the war. Because not everybody who went to Auschwitz went for a life sentence. If you were not Jewish, you may have only been there for six months, 12 months, 18 months. That's the whole point of Cory Ten Boom. They had been harboring Jews. Cory Ten Boom and her sister died in Ravensbrück. But then all of a sudden, the day came and they were releasing Cory, giving her her clothes back and leading her out the gate. So wasn't that a mistake? She was supposed to be on the death list and then something's happened. And they accidentally switched her. Yes, but Which, obviously it wasn't an accident. But you know. right, right, exactly. But the but my point is that there are there were lists of people who were not there permanently, and so yeah. the the priest may have been there for something that then you know then he was released. You could also there was also bribery. Yes, and just people yeah. breaking other people out. There, it's so it's not. Yeah, that's true. It was unusual, but it's not totally unheard of. Mm-hmm. Wasn't Saint Maximilian Kobe not originally originally not supposed to be in the concentration camp for a life sentence? Because he decided he, he volunteered, he right? Appeared to save another man's life. I don't life, know, Greta. But... I think you might be right about that. That he only had a a short term sentence. It's been years since I've read about yeah. him, but it makes sense. Yeah. Um, Fascinating. So I just liked that part. Great. Well, I think this is good. I don't want to cut you off if there's more you want to say, girls, but I think we have a good book club here. Yeah, good job. I do want to say that even though I spent a lot of this book club saying how much I didn't like parts of the book, I did really, really like the book. (laughs) Yes. I was really sad when it was done. Yes. You liked it so much that you actually bought a copy. For yourself, for oh. your own personal library. You know what I'm wondering? Is, you know how in the back she says that maybe ha- I'd like to think that Haya was part of the Warsaw City Uprising? Mm-hmm. And her new book coming out is called Uprising. Uprising. And I'm really hoping that Haya's in that book. It's on pre-order and it's coming Ooh. on March 5th. Just so you know. Okay. Oh, you ordered that? Yeah, of course nice. I did. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, Felicity, you'll be first in line. <laughs> <laughs> Mom, it'll be Lent. I can't read it yet. Too bad for you. <laughs> Greta gave up fiction for Lent. Oh gosh, which is really painful, yeah. by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Greta and Anna and Felicity, thanks for coming today. It was really fun. I, I like doing it this way. I do too, Diane. This is refreshing, and you know, one of the things I love about our book clubs is that we're not following any kind of script. We don't have mm-hmm. any kind of pre-planned questions. We just are coming together to talk about whatever it is that we're thinking about the book. And we'd like that to be an example to those of you at home who wish to do book clubs. This is how easy it is. You just get a couple of people together and you just talk about the book. <laughs> and you could talk about whatever you want to talk about and go on whatever rabbit trails you want. And Usually there's still some pretty great fruit that comes out of it. So 
Friends, we're so glad that you were here listening in today, and we're really grateful to Greta and Anna and Felicity, and I think we're going to ask them to come back again in the fall to do another book club. Um, Good. And I'm really grateful that we had this discussion about YA fiction, and I think we probably offended some of our listeners, (laughs) and if so... (laughs) Please know we weren't trying to offend you. We're just having some honest conversation about what we see as trends in the books that are being published today and our reception of them. So friends, if we did offend you and you want to tell us about it, we're happy to hear that. You can come and find us on social media. You can come and find us in the Biblio Guides online community, which is a mighty network. We'd love to chat with you there about it. Um, or send us an email. If you agree with us, golly, we'd love to know that too. (laughs) Most importantly, if you know of a YA author out there who you think is just really eminently worthy and who does not uh, practice some of these highly emotional writing techniques, we'd love to know about that. So mm-hmm. feel free to to let us know any and any and all of that. We are always open to book recommendations. So friends, thank you so very much for being here and until next time. <laughs>